Well, good morning, church. If you open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, as we continue our study in the preliminary chapters of this gospel. I'm continually, uh, surprise isn't the right word, but just continually impressed at how God gave us what we need in a way that we understand. Um, If you like novels, if you like reading, then you can appreciate the value of a narrative arc. You can appreciate how one thing comes after another and then you circle back to touch on similar themes. And we weren't given Scripture in a list. Scripture is not a catechism. Scripture is not a creed or a confession. Scripture is letters. Scripture is laws. Scripture is poems. Scripture is narrative. But it's divinely inspired. And so we receive it in this way, and we understand it in this way. So we'll look at another piece of the narrative in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark this morning. So look at verse 14 with me. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee and the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, but we thank you how it is not simply letters on pages, that all of the work of the men that you inspired to write this, that all of those that you have providentially guided in its transmission over the millennia and centuries, of all of the diligent labors of translators and collators getting us what we have in front of us, that this is not just words on paper, but it is indeed your divine word. Lord, you've promised that you will minister to us through your word. Your word is truth. Salvation comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. And so, Lord, this morning, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of if our hearts are high or our hearts are heavy, minister to us this morning through the power of your word, by your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So there's certain tropes that we find in stories, going back to the theme of narrative. There's certain tropes that we find. It's of ordinary people, normal people, maybe even subordinary people, maybe you can resonate with that, being brought along on a grand adventure. You think of Gandalf the wizard going and finding hobbits, constantly getting a hold of hobbits, these little people with not a lot to offer, that he makes the heroes of these stories. You think of the children that Aslan calls in, into the wardrobe, and into the the kingdom of Narnia, and they become not just bystanders, but kings and queens of this grand adventure. You think of the, uh, even the the hesitant uh, John Watson, who gets called by Sherlock Holmes to be his aide, and has to deal with all of of, uh, Holmes' idiosyncrasies but in doing so, gets to be part of these grand adventures and often becomes the missing piece that makes the whole mystery come together. We're used to this trope. We're used to this picture of ordinary or maybe even small people being brought along in grand adventures, witnessing amazing things, and then being used in extraordinary manners. And really, that's kind of the the scene and the situation that we see when we see Jesus call disciples and bring his disciples along with what he's doing with his ministry. And what it means and what it looks like and what this oftenly quoted phrase, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men, what's happening is that Jesus is calling 
his, his disciples to follow him. They don't become fishers of men because he says, I'm making you fishers of men. They become fishers of men. They become evangelists. They become apostles because they are following Jesus. That is what makes them who they are. But notice what happened. Jesus called them, and he expected them to listen. There's something that is exciting and something that is powerful in Jesus' call of his disciples. And we'll talk more about that in the coming chapters when this motley crew of apostles gets rounded out. But what we see here is that Jesus calls them and he expects them to listen, and they do listen. We never see Jesus go and call an apostle and then say no. They always come. There's this very direct call. There's this very deliberate call to apostleship where these men answer. Also notice that Jesus didn't take applicants. He didn't go out and find the smartest, the tallest, the richest, the best looking. He didn't even go into some sort of intersectionality quiz and see, I need to make sure I fill every quota. That way, when people read the Bible in 21st century, they can see how diverse and how open-minded I am. Jesus called the kind of people he wanted to call, and they were normal. They were ordinary, and oftentimes they had a lot of work to do to get where he wanted them to be. And so what we see, and we went through very quickly these verses, verses 14 through 20, on the heels of last week of learning who Jesus was, and learning who Jesus is, that Jesus calls these apostles. And then keep this in mind as we go forward through the rest of this morning's text, the rest of chapter 1, that he's called these men to come along and to follow him and to become fishers of men. So everything that we talk about, everything we look at this morning, Jesus' authority being the major theme of this morning's text, the apostles are bearing witness to this. And these things, the things that we're talking about, were the things that the apostles were meant to witness so that they could be fishers of men. And by extension, and to make this very applicable, to make this very pertinent for us this morning, these are the things that we are to witness so that we may become fishers of men. Sometimes we think, well, the pastor, the elders, the people that have gone to the evangelism seminar, the people that have read enough books, the people that have gotten to a certain age, the people that have a certain personality, that's the kind of people that God is going to use when the fact of the matter is, is that we are meant to see ourselves in the apostles, not read ourselves into the text, but find a line of continuity. Normal people called, and because they are called, that's what makes them special. It's not them, it's the call. It's the one doing the call. So that brings us to the, the bulk of this morning's text. So keep this in our minds as we look through this today. This idea of Jesus bringing these men along is now being indelibly linked to the things that we are about to be exposed to as we go through the Gospel of Mark. So look at uh, verse 21, and we'll look at a few verses here, verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as one of the scribes. Mark sees Jesus' ministry as teaching. This is the very first thing that we see, see Jesus doing when, in, in the sense that we usually think of Jesus doing things. So we've seen him be baptized. We've seen him begin to preach. We see him call his apostles. Those the first things happen in these first 20 verses of the Gospel of Mark. But as far as Jesus' first step in formal ministry goes, his normal day-to-day -day kind of thing. He doesn't get baptized every day. He doesn't call apostles every day. But of the things that he does every day, the first thing that we're introduced to, and the thing that I believe, and Mark's text certainly bears this out, that is intentionally given to us so that we are not mistaken at what Jesus' purpose is, and Jesus' point is, and Jesus' primary function is, is that Jesus is a teacher. Jesus is called a teacher 12 times in the Gospel of Mark. He's never called an exorcist, although we'll see that here in a minute. He's never called a healer, although we see that here in a minute. Jesus is called a teacher. Teaching matters. Teacher, it, teaching is an essential aspect of Jesus' ministry. In fact, jumping subjects here, jumping to the Gospel of John, we talked about this as we said the Gospel of John a few years ago. 
that, that John is deliberate in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to refer to Jesus' miracles as signs pointing to his teaching. Jesus is a teacher. So, a very pertinent application for us that means we can't be overwhelmed by the majesty and the miraculous nature of Jesus' d- dramatic ministry and downplay his teaching. That is a complete inversion of the intention of Christ and the intention of Scripture. If we are wowed by the miracles, but we downplay his hard sayings, his teachings, and his call for obedience, then we've got it completely wrong. He is not impressed that we are impressed with his miracles. In fact, he condemns those who follow him who are impressed by his miracles and not obedient to his teaching. What a, what a, what a wake-up call for the church. What a wake-up call for those who find themselves on the periphery of Christianity who are impressed by this man Jesus and the miracles that he does. But don't heed his words. Mark makes it clear that Jesus is a teacher. But what kind of teacher is he? We see this in verse 22, that those who were hearing his teaching were astonished at it because he was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribes. Scribes of that day, they followed schools. So kind of like today, you want to get into the right college, and if you get into the right college, you can wear the nice hoodie with that college's name on it, although you can buy that. You don't have to necessarily go to the school. But you can say, this is where I went to school, and so this is my pedigree, this is my bona fides, this is my alma mater, this is who I follow in. I learn from these kind of people. I pay this kind of money, I'm this much in debt, etc., etc. And so the scribes, they followed these schools, and these, they, would, they would say, I teach in this line of teachers. And they would claim authority on other men's reputation. So it wasn't even necessarily on their teaching. It was that they can trace back to somebody who taught 10 or 20 or 100 years ago that I teach in the same line or in the same vein or in the same school at this scribe. And so consequently, they were rehashing the same arguments. They were talking about the same things and what they weren't necessarily talking about. And a lot of the literature from this time from the rabbinical schools bears this out, it begins to be very derivative of Scripture. It's almost like we have today where people feel like they have to come up with a new interpretation. They have to come up with a a new thesis. So much of what we find outside of the conservative evangelical journals is really outlandish, wild attempts at having new interpretations of tried and true orthodox passages that, it, that the church has essentially agreed on for the last 2,000 years. In the 19th century, you saw people that thought, how do we make a name for ourselves theologically? How do we write new books? How do we start new schools? We're just going to start going out of left field. And that's essentially what you saw with some of the scribes and what we even have remaining today in extant manuscripts from these scribal schools is they begin to make names for themselves. They begin to try to come up with new and novel interpretations. And this all ties back to what we've talked about before of Christ's uh, admonition for those who are badly shepherding Israel because they are not drawing them to their Savior. But Jesus didn't have this authority. He had a true authority. And in fact, John had a good Greek word this morning. Here's another Greek word for us. It's exousia. And this is the word for authority. And this is not authority like I'm the boss of you. This has an authority uh, sense to it that has almost a supernatural nature. So we see this word and we see this idea elsewhere in Scripture, sometimes talking about supernatural authority that only God has. So the prerogative of Yahweh, the prerogative of God, a prerogative of God, but also sometimes in talking about the kind of authority that supernatural beings have over earth. They are not confined to the tangible. They're not confined to the physical. They're not limited in the way that we are. And so this word throughout the New Testament and also through other Greek examples shows that what is being attributed to Christ is not authority in the sense like he knows what he's talking about, although he does, but it's authority in a sense that this is a higher authority. He is speaking in a way that that has power. And as I I alluded to earlier, and as I I, I mentioned as we prayed for, for illumination as we open up the word of God, we need to believe that the word of God has power. 
it, it, it does something. It is not simply one clever way of articulating truth. It is the truth. And that's what those who were observing Christ were experiencing. They weren't simply saying, he sounds smarter, he can speak better, he can talk gooder than those people that are in front of us doing it on a day-in, day-out basis. They are saying, he's speaking in a way that actually has pop. It actually does something. It's, it's causing a sizzle. It's causing me to resonate with it. It's stirring up my spirit. That's what's being said in verse 22. Jesus had this authority, and that authority lined up with Scripture. It lined up with Scripture. It was not something new. It was not something different. He was not coming to abrogate the Old Testament. He was coming to explain it in a way it hadn't been explained before, both because of the abuse of the current scribes and teachers, but also because he is the fullness of that revelation. He is the explanation of the Old Testament. He shows what it is meant to be. So he has authority to teach. And this is the primary authority that the authority that we see in the coming text, in the coming verses, is going to point us back towards. Jesus has authority to teach. But now look at verses 23 through, through 38. Excuse me, through 28. So he's teaching. And immediately, and real quick, I love the formatting of my Bible, a Bible that you, my church gave to me uh, earlier this year. It actually starts every verse left justified, which is very easy for uh, helping me not squint as I'm preaching. But also, you notice in, in the Gospel of Mark, virtually every verse begins with and. And, 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 and. This is this pace that Mark is driving us through. He wants us to see how everything is connected. This is not some sort of like, like dictionary listings. Like Jesus did a thing. Jesus did a thing. It's these things build on each other. And so he's teaching, and then verse 23, and immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, what do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Here we have... The beginning of Jesus' miraculous ministry, although we already had a miraculous manifestation of the triune presence of the Godhead earlier in chapter 1, here we see Jesus performing a miracle proper, as it were. We see him casting out a demon. But first, let's notice where this demon was. This demon was in the synagogue. This demon was in the church, for all intents and purposes. It's not church, but like in, in, in the sanctuary, right? The synagogue was not immune to evil. And in fact, one of the things that we begin to see and as, as Jesus has more interactions with the scribes and with the Pharisees is that it wasn't, it wasn't even that the synagogue was not immune to evil. It's that the synagogue, you could even say, has an evil element to it. That there was no power there. Jesus had authority to cast out demons. Jesus had authority to teach in both of these things were not the kind of things that were being manifested in the synagogue by the Jewish authorities. Only Jesus can drive out the darkness. We see that first century establishment Judaism couldn't drive out the darkness. Only Jesus can. Now, I think this is an important point for us to kind of pause on for, for a moment. First of all, Unclean spirits, demonic spirits are real. Scripture doesn't kind of mess around with that. Something that, that I, I think we'll, we'll touch on here in a minute, actually, let's touch, touch on it uh, immediately. Look at verse 24. Um, excuse me, uh, verse 23. It says he's an unclean spirit. He calls him an unclean spirit. Mark uses this term unclean spirit more than he uses demon. But consequently, seeing this term unclean spirit, one of the things that we have in, in, in what we kind of have in a um, contemporary cultural snobbery is that, well, we've figured out psychology. We've figured out that we know that there's people that have mental problems today 
Back then, they simply attributed it to demons. So this is the, the contrast. We know better. You know, we understand this. You know, they probably did things like, you know, used leeches and did bleedings and things like that. And we're actually finding out now that bleeding actually isn't the worst thing in the world. But that's neither here nor there. But it's this idea that these people probably just had, you know, a, a chemical imbalance, or they were probably having a bad day. And Jesus was just being like a really good therapist. He was providing them with just kind of the words they needed to self-actualize and get right back on track. Okay, if, if this person simply had a mental illness, a behavioral problem, what he says in verse 24 is very bizarre. What do you have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? People who have behavioral, mental conditions, why would he ask, be concerned that Jesus was going to destroy him? But even more telling is what his next words in verse 24 are. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This person clearly did not only have a chemical imbalance. They had some sort of supernatural influence. They had some sort of, of, of metaphysical impact in them such that they were aware of who Jesus was in a time where Jesus had not told anybody who he was. So we're not going to get into a deep study of demonology or even angelology or anything like that this morning, but I think it's clear that if we bring any skepticism that we have from our modern age that these people were rubes who didn't understand mental health, although that may be true in some respects, that's not what's being talked about in the Gospels, in the New Testament, when talking about unclean spirits. What we have here is someone who is demonized, someone who is being possessed, someone who is being significantly and dramatically influenced by an abusive, antagonistic spirit. So, first of all, notice, notice what he's saying. He's calling Jesus the Holy One of God. This is a reminder for us that knowledge doesn't save that simply being able to say Jesus is God, that doesn't save you. Because this demon possessed man, or this demon knew that. But he was concerned. He had the knowledge that Jesus was God, but he also knew that Jesus was on, he was on Jesus' bad list. He knew that he was in, uh, being threatened with destruction. Augustine wrote that we ought not to boast in a faith that puts you on the same level with devils. So if it's purely an academic, purely an intellectual faith that says, well, I acknowledge that Jesus is God. I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God or any other number of, 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 of creedal articulations of who Jesus is, but it doesn't have any personal impact. It doesn't make any change to us. We don't acknowledge him as Lord. We don't submit to him, but we live in fear of him as this man, this possessed man did. Then we are no better than a demon. We are no better than one who gets it up here, but has no change in our hearts. All of that to say, going back to the fact that this demon is in the synagogue, only Jesus can drive out the darkness. They, they were unable to do it. These wicked shepherds, these ones who were teaching as though they had no authority to kind of invert what is said when they talked about Jesus, they could not drive this out. There was no power in it. It was an empty religion. It was a dried out husk of what God had given Israel. That is what the state of the majority of Judaism was when Christ came to bring a message of salvation. But this isn't something that's over, and we can actually make a one-to-one -one of this with Christianity. A Christianity that takes Jesus out of the picture, and that exists. Because if you have Jesus in the picture, then you have to contend with Jesus' statements. You have to contend with Jesus' statements like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And there's plenty of, of iterations of quote-unquote Christianity today that are, there are many roads that lead to the top of the mountain kind of Christianity, where they say we, in our cultural setting, in our, in our preference, we choose Jesus, but other people choose other ways to get to God. Well, 
That is the same kind of situation like we see in the first century when Jesus is confronting these scribes who say they're, they are speaking for God, but they're really talking about what they want to talk about. So just as first century establishment Judaism couldn't drive out the darkness, 21st century establishment Christianity, blending into the culture, blending into the way that's convenient for them, wide open doors and wide open back doors, they do not allow for the power that drives out darkness. That being said, we return to the nature of the authority of Jesus' word. Every once in a while, a broken clock, actually twice a day, every, twice a day, a broken clock is right. Every once in a while, a blind squirrel finds a nut. And so amazingly and beautifully and wonderfully in God's providence, even churches that don't proclaim the gospel, if they happen to have God's word and the right word is spoken, he can use that to draw people to himself. And consequently, what happens then is that his spirit in them will spur them towards truth and move them towards either reformation or towards finding somewhere where there is truth being proclaimed. But I think it's important to point out that just because there was an image of religiosity where Jesus was teaching, that there was no power there because there was, the word was not being presented with authority. Also notice that Jesus is working on the Sabbath. We see that in verse 21. He enters on the Sabbath. This is a theme that we'll touch on in coming weeks, but it's worth pointing out here. But he teaches, and in verse 27, he teaches. They were all amazed so that they were arguing among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is, again, the point of Jesus's ministry. He is not out there to perform tricks. He is not out there to wow and impress people with what he can do. He is saying the same words that should have been being proclaimed for centuries as Israel had the word of God, but he's doing so in a spirit of truth consistent with the intention of the word of God. So he has authority to cast out demons, but even in verse 27 we see that they are, are at that moment understanding that his teaching. The authority of his proclamation of the word of God, of his word, is the thing that they, are being, that they are focusing on even while he is casting out demons. He has the authority to teach. He has the authority to cast out demons. We see another type of authority that Jesus manifests and that Jesus demonstrates beginning in verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she began waiting on him. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. First of all, I think this text proves that once you start feeling better, you got to get back to work. Not really, but it's kind of fun. So what, is it, what happens? A few things happen. So they leave the synagogue. They go into, into, the house, into Peter's house. Peter is referred to as, as Simon in, in this text. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And what happens? Jesus heals her. What does he do? He raises her up. He takes her by the hand. But notice this language. There's no coincidences. Jesus raises her up. He lifts her up. He takes her from somewhere where she was and brings her to where she ought to be. Not necessarily in the kitchen, but on her feet. What do we see in this? What is this authority? Jesus has authority over the physical. And this, we, we can't miss on this, church. And I've been, I've been critical this morning. I'm often critical of where we are in our evangelical moment in the United States or certainly in the world in 2023. But there's something very important that we see here. Jesus' power is not simply spiritual. Jesus' power is not simply spiritual. He can teach things about God, he can take out demons, but he can also fix people's bodies. 
we have this weird Gnostic influence, and I think I know where it comes from, but we don't have to go down that rabbit trail today. We have this weird Gnostic influence in evangelicalism that says spiritual good, physical bad. And I think it goes to the idea that we, there's this, this idea that it's all going to burn up anyway, so who cares, right? This bad idea of creation stewardship. But we have this Gnosticism that says spiritual good, physical bad. And so we think, you know, God can help us with our problems in our heads. God can help us with our problems in our hearts. God, you know, if and when you go to the deepest, darkest jungles and there's a demon there, then God is able to take care of that. But what is clearly being communicated to us in this text is that Jesus, the great teacher who teaches with authority, has power over the spiritual, but he also has power over the physical. Now hear me, church, that does not mean that if we pray the right words in the right order, or we get the right number of elders to lay hands on you in the right configuration, that your physical maladies are going to disappear instantaneously. We know that's not true. We even see that not being borne out in the testimony of the Gospels and of the New Testament. But that doesn't mean that we don't see that Jesus has power over the physical realm. Jesus has the power to heal. All creation was created by whom and for whom? By Christ. By whom does all thing, are all things held together? Jesus. The molecules and the cells and everything in your body that is rightly ordered on the days when you feel well are being held together by Jesus Christ. The, the cells that are in your body that are in a certain configuration such that you don't feel well are being held by Jesus Christ and in his will, in his time, according to his providential hand, he is able to make those move in the right way. Of course, this opens up a whole host of questions. Why doesn't he just do it? That's not for this morning. That's a good conversation, and it's one that's worth having, and one that we have many here who can bear testimony to, understanding why God's timing was better than their timing. And some who are still asking that question, and those are good questions to ask, but the underlying presupposition of that conversation and those questions is not, does Jesus have power over the physical? It's that Jesus does have power over the physical. That is important to understand, and it's important to note, and we see that here. Jesus was not some sort of esoteric healer who only could deal with things that were intangible. This person was out of their mind, and now they are kind of in their right mind. He was able to take someone who was laying down and rise them up. He was able to take someone who couldn't see and make them see, couldn't hear, make them hear, couldn't speak, make them speak. And we'll meet those people, and we'll see Jesus' ministry to them only in a short matter of chapters. But we also see here that Jesus was one who is characterized by mercy. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. But then look at verses 32 and 33 and 34. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. You almost get the sense that because, remember, this is happening on the Sabbath. And when can you start kind of getting back into the normal routine of life? It's at sundown. It's the Sabbath ends at sundown. You know, day wasn't midnight to midnight. It was sun, 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 sundown to sundown. So they're able to. They're, they're champing at the bit. They know that Jesus is able to do special stuff. And so as soon as they can, as soon as that sun sets below the horizon, what happens? They come and they crowd Peter's house in Capernaum. The whole city, it said, had gathered at the door. There's verse 34, my translation, it says, he healed many who were ill and cast out many demons. And that doesn't mean that he's like, you know, I'll take the first 20, I'll take the first 50. This is meant to say he, he, he did a lot. He did a lot. He had a ministry that was characterized by mercy. These were his people. Remember, he was baptized in a way identifying with the plight of his people. And now he is healing his people in Capernaum. But something intriguing happens, something that we already saw and we didn't really talk about back when he cast out a demon. But we see it here in verse 34. He healed many who were ill, cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So again, we've already had the, the, a few times where we see the divine identity of Christ being pointed out in the Gospel of Mark. 
The, the, the passage from Isaiah that is, is used to introduce the Gospel of Mark is a passage talking about Yahweh, about God himself, and it's clear that it's also talking about Jesus. And Jesus is, is being presented in this triune fashion at his baptism. He is preaching the kingdom of God. John is preparing for him. He is the one who has the authority to deal with unclean spirits. He is teaching with the supernatural authority in the synagogue. The demons, they knew who he is. But why didn't he let them teach? If these people had such a, uh, these demons had such a hold on these people and this culture, why didn't he just allow them to go out and like Samson tying the foxes together and setting them on fire and setting the city ablaze, why didn't he just let them go out? And even if they were wild and crazy, why didn't he let them tell them, tell everyone who Jesus was? This is an interesting aspect of the Gospel of Mark. It's inevitably something we'll come up, come, come across over and over as we go through this Gospel. But what's clear is that Jesus understands providence. He understands that there's timing. That sometimes we think about God as being out of time, and, and yes, he's not constrained to time and entropy like we are, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a chronology. And certainly, as he intrudes and enters into his creation in the incarnation, that he understands and values the purpose of sequential activities and there being a point. Paul talks about in Galatians as the fullness of time into which Jesus enters into his creation. And we see that here too. The beginning of his ministry is not when he wants the notoriety. It's at the cross that he wants this to be, to be what is broadcast. And so the beginning of his ministry he silences. He tells these demons that they're not permitted to testify to who he is. It's often quoted, too, that his desire is not that the demons proclaim who he is, but it's his apostles. It's not the supernatural. It's not the wild. It's not the dramatic. It's these ordinary people, these hobbits, these children, these us, to tell people who he is. Continuing on, look at verses 35 and 37. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out to the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. Just as a brief aside, I'd like to point out this, this interesting interaction. Jesus had a plan. His plan included time off. The apostles didn't get it yet. They thought, last night was amazing. We healed many. We cast out many demons. Let's keep doing that. Jesus had a time of rest. Downstairs, we were just talking to the children. They started their Sunday school curriculum back in Genesis 1, so where we just were a few months ago, and how essential understanding the fact that that seventh day, that day of rest, is wired into creation and wired into us. Jesus is someone you see seeking rest, seeking peace, seeking solitude over and over and over again. But the apostles didn't get it. We often don't get it either. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, Let us go elsewhere, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And again, that is what I came out for. He's about to cast out a demon. He's about to heal more people. But what did he come out for? He came out to teach. And he went, in verse 39, preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out the demons. It seems like there was a significant demonic presence in the synagogues, once more emphasizing that it wasn't simply this neutral place where there was a vacuum of spirituality, but because of the poor stewardship of the word of God, an actual evil presence had come in. That's what we're meant to see and meant to think about when we reread the gospel of Mark. Look at verse 40, and a leper came to Jesus, pleading with him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and was cleansed. And he, Jesus, sternly warned the man and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But as he went out, he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. 
So we see, once again, Jesus tells the demons to be quiet because, again, Jesus' timetable is better than the demons. And Jesus himself is better than the demons. This is, this is something that we, we again, are going to see again here in a moment, that Jesus has a timetable. This is an integral part of his ministry. But, of course, what we see in verse 42 is that Jesus encounters a leper. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this. I don't want to talk your ear off. It's a leprosy joke. Oh, man, that's rough. Anyway, um, but we actually, we, con- contemporary leprosy is probably not what we're talking about here. Contemporary leprosy is, not, is probably not what we see in the New Testament. Because the, the leprosy that we see in the New Testament, the leprosy that, that caused people to have to go out of the camp and were ritually unclean, you go back to Leviticus and the same laws that are being enforced against people with leprosy in the first century seems to be the same kind of leprosy that you saw back in the Levitical Code, which was a kind of leprosy that was transmitted by not only skin contact, but the materials and the things that that skin touched such that if somebody had this, they had to have their walls re-whitewashed, and they had to have all of their garments and material possessions either bleached, burned, or replaced. So this was a legitimate problem. This was a legitimate illness, not to say that contemporary uh, leprosy that we still have today in parts of the world isn't, but this seems to be something even more extreme than that. And what does Jesus do? The way that Jesus heals, Mark's gospel, it's very, very deliberate to talk about the way Jesus heals. Look at verse 41. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him. One of the things that you'll see if you read commentaries of this passage of just, people cannot get away from the poignant picture that's being painted here. Jesus' cleansing is what takes place of the filth, kind of like what John talked about. At a spiritual level, what we see in Jesus' becoming human is taking our place. Here, Jesus touches the untouchable, loves the unlovable, heals the unhealable in one touch, that personal element. And in doing so, shows his compassion. He could have spoken and healed him, but think of the compassion that went into a touch. It's not always easy to hold the hand of a dying person. It really isn't. They don't feel good. It's not a good situation. I mean, let's be clear. There's nothing... For a pastor, for someone in hospice, it's not any better. But it's never something you regret doing. It's never something you say, oh man, that was icky. It's something that you know has power. Something that you know means something. It's something that we were unfortunately deprived for needlessly for the last few years, and we're only now beginning to understand and appreciate the problems that it caused. Holding someone's hands when they're hurting. Holding someone's hand when no one else will hold their hands. It means something. Jesus held the last person's hand that anyone would have expected his hand to hold. And he was doing it. He was healing someone who didn't only get a diagnosis, but because of the nature of this illness, received a sentence of banishment, a sentence of separation. And in one foul swoop, Jesus not only showed compassion, not only healed him, but brought him back into fellowship, brought him back into community. Notice he didn't just heal him. In verse 41, it says, he is cleansed. That's what this man was asking for. He wasn't even necessarily asking, just just make me feel better. Cleanse me. Bring me back to where I should be. And in verse 44, in verse 42, it says that. The leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus cleanses him and tells him to obey. What does Jesus tell him to obey? Look at verse 44. Once again, is Jesus getting rid of the Old Testament? Absolutely not. He says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, everything's new. There's there's a new boss here, different than the old boss. You go to those priests and say, I don't owe you anything. Jesus healed me. 
He says, this is how we're doing things still. You are listening to the law still. You are an Israelite on this side of the cross. He doesn't say that, of course, but he's saying, still, fulfill your obligations. Obey. This man goes and does it. But Jesus tells the man to be silent. Sometimes this is presented as this guy having an evangelistic fervor and Jesus saying, oh, well, he disobeyed. But I mean, he's telling people about me. When Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. And this is one of those tricky parts of this text. Jesus told this man to not tell anyone about him. And notice the demons, when we, we don't get any examples of Jesus casting out demons and the demons still telling people about who Jesus was. But this man and other men and other people that we encounter in Scripture, not only does Jesus tell them to be quiet, but they are not quiet. They go and tell people about him. And consequently, it makes ministry hard for him. Jesus had a plan. It says in verse 45, but he went out, and the man who was healed went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. The demons don't testify, but this man does, and it makes ministry hard for Jesus. There's much that we can say about that. Now, there's a lot of rabbit trails that we could go down. We don't have time for it this morning. But Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a purpose. And his purpose at this point was to touch people and heal people and to cast out demons and to teach them and minister to them, but to do it in a certain way. Yet people caused problems. The apostles caused problems. We'll see that coming up. And even those he helps cause problems. So Jesus demonstrates his authority to teach, his authority to cast out demons, and his authority to heal. And notice who's there for all of it. It's his disciples. It's these men he's called, these people who weren't special, but who were simply called. They had nothing going for them. They were fishermen. At this point, it was only a handful who called out of the boats. They weren't special. They were simply called. And what were they called to do? What does he ask them to do? He doesn't ask them to do anything. He just says, come and follow me. They were called at this moment to follow him. And what we see as the the first steps of following Jesus is to witness Jesus's authority. They're standing there in the background as he teaches in a way that makes everyone uncomfortable. They're there in the background as he goes up to the guy who's raving in the corner of the synagogue because he's possessed by a demon, and Jesus begins to talk with him, and Jesus casts out this demon. They're there as Jesus walks over to Peter's mother-in-law and makes her stand up and then says, we're hungry. They're there when Jesus goes up to the leper and touches the leper. If they were aboard of directors, they would have said, Jesus, stop. We need to take a vote. We know that you might be able to help this leper out, but let's make sure we're doing the best thing for where we are. Let's make sure we're all on the same page. Let's make sure we're managing our resources well. Let's make sure this doesn't affect your PR. But they're just there watching it. They're called, and at this moment, only to bear witness to Jesus's authority. And they were being prepared at this moment, at this kind of uh, uh, um, embryonic stage of their being with Jesus to bear witness to his authority. These would be the things that they would come back to. These would be the moments that would be profound for them. For Peter, the one who inevitably influenced Mark, and Mark through the Spirit wrote this, why do we have this inclusion of his mother being lifted up, immediately being able to work in the kitchen? It's silly, but it's a personal moment that Peter is returning to decades after the fact. An early church father and chronicler of of documents from, from the first centuries, Eusebius, wrote this in talking about this passage. He said, The disciples might have reasonably asked, How can we do this? How can we be fishers of men? How can we preach to Romans? How can we argue with Egyptians? 
We are brought up to use the Syrian or the Aramaic tongue only. What language would we speak to Greeks? How could we persuade Persians, Armenians, Chaldeans, Scythians, Indians, and other scattered nations? By what power will we ever survive this daring attempt? This would be a reasonable thing to say as they left their boats and as they followed Jesus. But they were immediately going to be witness to teaching with authority, casting out demons with authority, healing with authority. And then they would be promised that that authority would be given to them because Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, of the spiritual and of the incorporeal. And then that authority would be made manifest to them in a powerful way at Pentecost where they would actually be given the language to speak to those nations. And in the coming days and weeks, they would be have, through the Holy Spirit, be able to stand up and preach to the Romans, to argue with the Egyptians, to do all of these things that they could not have found possible. Like a tiny little hobbit being called from the Shire, going up to the top of a mountain. Like a skeptical police officer being, or doctor being brought in to work with a, uh, a genius detective. Like children stumbling their way through clothing into a lamppost on a snowy path. But to a much greater extent, the apostles were brought along to do marvelous, amazing things. And although we're not apostles... We are disciples, and we follow in that apostolic tradition. And so as we read the gospel in the Spirit, we're called to follow Jesus. We're witnessing Jesus' authority, and we're being prepared to bear witness to his authority. We're small church, but we follow a big, big God who has all authority on heaven and on earth. So now as we move to the Lord's Supper... This is an opportunity for us to bear witness, to bear testimony to the authority, the authority of the true blood and the true body that was broken and the blood that was spilled on our behalf. We look back at that authority and we lean on that authority as we preach this visible sermon, each one of us with wine and bread in our hands. We do that, and in doing so, we show our children and those around us what we believe. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is his table, and he invites you to come and partake of it. As I pray, John will come up and lead us in a song. I ask you to come receive the elements as we take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your table. We thank you that your son and his authority gave this to his apostles, and that that apostolic authority kept this going that we have this 2,000 years later. The authority that you've given to your church can now administer this. This was not a one-time thing, but it's a regular thing. And in doing so, we can remember, but we can also experience your presence. So Lord, be with us. Remind us of the authority that you hold. Remind us of the authority that your son wields. Authority to teach, authority to heal, authority even over the demons. Remind us of these things as we hold that which represents his body and his blood, and we receive his presence in faith this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen.